Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good to be back with all of you tonight. Why don't you stand? We'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us on to temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome back, Father Paul Shank. Good evening. Always a joy to be with you and uh, to uh, follow through uh, now on uh, this reflection, this study. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, not, well, perhaps that's not exactly accurate uh, because we're going to uh, enter in now on, a, on a, another level. We laid the groundwork. We looked at really the foundation of Catholic engagement in the political realm, but we looked at the, the, the foundation, the core, the heart of Catholic teaching in regard to the, uh, the human person. And we're going to leave that as the, as the background, the, the backstory or the foundation, um, if you will. And then we're going to pick up, actually, uh, I have uh, the, the, the very document that uh, Father was speaking of, the doctrinal note on qu some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life. And we're going to start with that, actually, and then we're going to uh, move uh, on from there. But uh, before we do, um, I was at Mass this morning. I have temporary charge of a parish uh, just uh, west, southwest of York, Pennsylvania. And uh, I was at Mass this morning when the news came to us of the martyr's death afforded the priest in France, uh, along with another who is not identified but injured, and then the, the killing of the two uh, terrorists. And uh, I thought... Uh, it would be best if we just quieted our hearts for a moment, remembered this dear priest, uh, pray for his soul and uh, for the people of uh, that parish. The parish is not named, but is the, the town of Saint-Antienne du Rouvray. 
And so let us quiet ourselves for a moment to pray for the soul of Père Jacques Hamel. Rappelez-vous au très miséricordieuse Vierge Marie, qu'on n'a jamais connu que tous ceux qui ont fui à ta protection. Implorez ton secours, ô cherchez tant et été abandonné. Inspiré par cette confiance, je voulais à toi, ô Vierge de Vierge, mon mère, pour te faire qui je viens. Devant toi je suis, pécheur répandant. Ô Mère de Verbe, ne méprisez pas mes prières, mais dans ta bonté et réponds-moi en tendant. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my Mother, to thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Saints Joachim and Anna, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the chairman of the uh, school board had reached out to me and asked me to be seated on a specially commissioned committee, panel, to uh, devise a new curriculum for health and human development for a 53,000 student uh, school system in Western New York. This was a code term for sex education. So approximately 24 people were seated, including some professors from the university. Uh, there were some administrators from the school system. There were some teachers, parents, the president of Planned Parenthood, and uh, a number of, um, uh, of other civic uh, leaders were on this panel. And uh, it soon became evident that myself and my allies were going to be a minority. And so I petitioned the administrative committee of the school board to write a minority report and to read the minority report after the majority report. And I was granted permission to do that. So approximately eight of us uh, authored the, well, I practically authored the document, but eight signed on to it. And then came the night when the new curriculum would be presented, the proposal for the new curriculum would be presented to the school board and the chambers were absolutely packed to the rafters. All the media was there. And we were called into a, 
a consultation uh, with the board administration before the meeting, and we were each told our parts, where we were to be seated, and when we would be called on. And so the, uh, we went into the chamber, we were all seated facing the audience and the media, and uh, the majority report was read, and then came the time for the minority report, and the president said, and now Reverend Shank will uh, rise to read the minority report, and when I went to rise from my seat, I felt a hand laid on both of my shoulders, and one grabbing the back of my collar, and a whisper from behind me, you, are n you will not stand and read. I, I shook off my, my uh, restrainers, <laughs> and I went to rise again, and again, I had two arms placed on my shoulder and pressed into my seat, you will not speak. And uh, then a third time I had to shake off my restrainers and I rose to jeers and heckles as I began to read the minority uh, report. And I realized then that I had, I had fallen into a trap, a setup. Uh, I was surrounded by persons who were literally willing to muzzle me in that, uh, in that meeting. I had, uh, around the same time, I had been asked to come and speak on the uh, subject of life and abortion at the State University. And so I went into an auditorium with combined classes. It was political science. Uh, it was the social sciences, basically, in some history. Uh, and the auditorium was uh, full. I was introduced, I gave my presentation, and then I went uh, off with my host, who was uh, two professors, and they said, we must apologize because we have no uh, lecture stipend for you. And I wasn't there for a lecture stipend, but uh, they felt it necessary to explain. They said, we went to the university bursar, and uh, the bursar said, oh, Reverend, we can't write a check to a reverend. And the host said, what do you mean? Well, this is a state university. Separation of church and state. Later, uh, in a debrief after the, after the minority report at the school board, I was told that the reason why I was not going to be permitted to rise and speak in spite of being invited by the president of the board to do so was because a religious minister had no role in the public sphere. That was the mindset. What is he doing here and why is he speaking? He's a minister, he has no place in this political context, in this setting of public uh, discourse. Well, we saw last week, we looked at some of the foundations of Catholic teaching with regard to the public sphere. But let me read again a few more salient points. The commitment of Christians in the world has found a variety of expressions in the course of the past 2,000 years. 
One such expression has been Christian involvement in political life. Christians, as one church writer stated, play their full role as citizens. Among the saints, the church venerates many men and women who served God through their generous commitment to politics and government. Among these, St. Thomas More, who was proclaimed patron of statesmen and politicians, gave witness by his martyrdom to the inalienable dignity of the human conscience. Though subjected to various forms of psychological pressure, St. Thomas More refused to compromise, never forsaking the constant fidelity to legitimate authority and institutions which distinguished him. He taught by his life and his death that man cannot be separated from God, nor politics from morality. You remember when the scribe rose and asked our Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And what did our Lord answer? You remember this. The first commandment, or the greatest commandment, is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like it. The two-party system in American politics tends to divide the country in halves, creating a polarized electorate and an us-against-them way of thinking. Heavily biased news reporting seems to exacerbate the situation. And sadly, this sharp controversy sometimes enters the church, igniting suspicions and pitting Catholics against each other. Partisan politics has tried to pit social justice Catholics against right-to-life Catholics, and strained a contrived division which actually doesn't exist in Catholicism. Catholic social doctrine, as we saw last week, embraces both issues of the sanctity of human life and of social justice. In church teaching, these two concerns with human well-being are complementary, not contradictory. The one is reliant upon the other. Now, to listen to some political commentators, not to mention candidates, one must be chosen over the other. So, what we're seeing played out again in this uh, electoral season is this juxtaposition. But this is not so. For Catholics, these two concepts, the sanctity of every human life and the just treatment of all people are inseparable. One necessarily leads to the other. They are two parts of a whole. Now this being the case, there is an essential progression beginning with the sanctity of human life and eventuating in matters of social justice, 
such as fair wages, housing, education, health care, immigrant rights, and so forth. In their instructive document, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, the bishops write this, the right to life implies and is linked to other human rights, to the basic goods that every human person needs to live and to thrive. All the life issues are connected for erosion of respect for life of any individual or group in society necessarily diminishes respect for all life. The moral imperative to respond to the needs of our neighbors, basic needs such as food, shelter, health care, education, and meaningful work, is universally binding on our consciences and may be legitimately fulfilled by a variety of means. Catholics must seek the best ways to respond to these needs. As blessed Pope John the 23rd taught, each of us has the right to life, to bodily integrity, and to the means which are suitable for the proper development of life. These are primarily food, clothing, shelter, rest, medical care, and finally, the necessary social services. Now, if we were to break down these statements by the bishops, we would find that there is an egregious violation of each one of them being perpetrated in what Pope Francis has called the throwaway culture. Think for a moment of the expose of the videos over the last two years, clandestinely or, or uh, undercover videos that were taken of the Planned Parenthood personnel attempting to sell the body parts of aborted babies. Think of that for a moment, and then think again of the push for transsexual surgeries. And again, the, 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 uh, the disintegration of the human form, the human uh, body. Uh, once we undermine that sacred value of the human person who is fully integrated and a whole, and we begin to diminish that value, we begin to denigrate the actual image and form of the person. And this is what's taking place. So that the bishops actually refer in this chain of references, which is by no means comprehensive, but just uh, illustrative. The bishops refer to such things as meaningful work, shelter, health care, but they rest this in the right to life, to bodily integrity, and to the means which are suitable for the proper development of life. And uh, these are primarily food, clothing, shelter, rest, and so forth. Now, plainly stated, without the right to human life, 
there are no other human rights. What right to education does an aborted baby have? What right to health care does a euthanized elder have? What right to mental health care does a suicide have? So all these essential core rights of the human person, as we saw last week, that do not derive from the reality of the state or the decision of other persons, but rather come to us from God through nature. These all begin and find their meaning and expression with the right to life. Now the bishops quote Pope St. John Paul, perhaps the foremost Christian philosopher of our era. Above all, the common outcry, which is justly made on behalf of human rights, for example, the right to health, to home, to work, to family, to culture, is false and illusory if the right to life, the most basic and fundamental right, and the condition for all other personal rights is not defended with maximum determination. So again, we find that the fountainhead of all this panoply of human rights is the right to life. All moral claims are not equal in magnitude. Some are more important and imperative than others. So for illustrative purposes, let's make a comparison between the right to life and the rights of immigrants. In its twin decisions, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that abortion is legal for nearly any reason throughout all nine months of pregnancy and even at the time of delivery. More than one million preborn children and even some babies during delivery are aborted every year. Now, I know what you're thinking, but didn't the Supreme Court strike down partial birth abortions in uh, Gonzales v. Carhartt, Gonzales v. Planned Parenthood? The answer is no. The Supreme Court did not strike down partial birth abortion. It only struck down a manner in which it is carried out. Basically, the end of that, those two decisions is find another way to do it. Um, in spite of the compelling language of that case, April 18, 2007, isn't that the, the date? Um, in spite of that, 
nevertheless, the, the practical outcome of it is find another way to do it. So this is still legal in our country. And imagine now firing squads mounted on the bluffs in the southwest desert shooting Mexicans illegally crossing into the U.S. and killing over a million a year. Just imagine that for a moment. This is precisely what is taking place in the abortion structures of our society. Who could legitimately champion the cause of undocumented aliens arguing for education, health care, and employment rights while approving of such a lethal policy? Their legitimate human rights necessarily rest upon their fundamental right to their lives. But we must pause and integrate these important elements of justice and the respect for life. In the same way that a claim of defending the rights of vulnerable people while calling for the ending of unborn lives is hypocritical and indefensible, so is calling for an end to abortions while demeaning the weak and the marginalized. Human dignity begins with the respect for life, but by no means ends there. Demeaning, degrading, or discounting persons because of their origins, their ethnicity, their religious heritage, their class, their sexual behavior, or gender, is acting against their life. Ignoring or worsening the conditions persons live in, such as failing to provide nutrition, clean water, health care, or shelter, things which are necessary to sustaining life, are actions against life. We cannot morally trade away those things necessary to preserve life for things that protect life. We must insist on both at the same time with the same priority. So I was on the front lines of the pro-life initiative in New York and the Democrat committee, it was called the Democrat Club, and uh, it was convened twice a month at a group of tables in the corner of Frank's Sunny Italy restaurant. And all the big decisions in politics in Western New York took place at those tables. No kidding. The, the uh, campaigns were created there, the candidates were chosen there, and uh, 
So the Democrat committee called and asked to come and see me. So I said, fine, and, and they came to see me in my study, and they, they all sat prim and proper in their coats and ties and the professionals, and they said to me, we would like for you to run for state senate on a Democrat platform, and you don't have to bother with anything. There's $100,000 in the bank to start the campaign. We've created the, the uh, terms of your campaign, and uh, all you have to do is, is, is go around and meet people. And I said, hmm, sounds like a fine job. Just go around. No, I said, are you kidding? <laughs> and uh, I was courteous, but uh, I showed them the door. Well, don't you know that a few weeks later I get a call from the Republican committee. <laughs> and they come by and they make a similar offer, only they didn't have as much money. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was humored by now. And uh, I said, are you kidding? <laughs> and, uh, and I showed them the door. The two-party arrangement is a tremendous strain on uh, our uh, convictions. Now, that doesn't mean that I, uh, that I eschewed or avoided political uh, engagement. In fact, uh, the next year I went to the Democratic Convention uh, and I was on the floor of the convention and uh, I was booed on the floor of the Democratic Convention. And uh, we, had our, we had our signs. I won't tell you on, on video what, what they said, but uh, <laughs> we had our signs and, and uh, we, we, we addressed the, the different, uh, the different uh, contingents. Uh, but, but we were booed uh, on the floor of the, the Democratic Convention. Then we later went to the Republican Convention uh, and uh, we got booed on the floor of the Republican convention. So I felt quite good <laughs> because I thought, this is good. I've got a little bit of something to offend everybody. Uh, and this is one of the evidences, I think, of the integration of the truth. It can't be bifurcated. We can't separate it apart. It's fully integrated. So, we must insist on both the sanctity of human life and the dignity of the human person which results in the common good. That's my Trinitarian formula. Sanctity of life, dignity of the person, common good of all people. Now, the church does not presume to instruct individual Catholics which candidate to vote for. I was asked to write an article for our diocesan newspaper addressing the uh, electoral season. And so I wrote the article, I submitted it to the editorial board, 
and I was at our priest conference when my phone started ringing. It was the, di the, the diocesan office. You always wonder if the mitre is calling. So I left the room, took the call, and uh, it was one of the diocesan, one of the members of the uh, Catholic Conference, the attorney for the Catholic Conference with two other diocesan attorneys, and they were raising their voices with me. And they said, you can't publish this. And I said, ah, uh, uh, I, knew, I knew I was going to get this call because the title was, the title of my article was, How Catholics Should Vote. <laughs> they said, you can't put this out. I said, read it. There's nothing contradictory in the article to the bishop's position. Nothing. They said, but, but the headline, <laughs> they said, the title of the article, we can't publish the title of the article. <laughs> I understood. I understood, you know. I, 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 I loved uh, Abuna Ezekiel's uh, motto there, uh, and that's the beauty of the diversity of the church. We have St. Francis, who says uh, something like, <laughs> and I don't know either, Father, whether he said it or not, but, but uh, use words if you must. But I love, uh, the, I'd like to have a little handbook in my pocket, the sayings of Abuna Hezekias, and put right in there, God gave us a mouth to speak with. <laughs> to talk with. I don't remember how exactly. It's, it's a different phrase, but that's the beauty of the, of the language of the church. It's a, you know, we always get a different, different way of saying it. But, uh, so I've, I've gotten in trouble with my mouth, a, uh, a significant uh, amount of trouble with my mouth. Um, in fact, my mouth went to the Supreme Court, now that I think of it. Uh, so I understood why they were nervous about the title, but my point was that, in the article, was that you must keep all of these precepts in mind. When you go into the voting booth, you cannot trade away elements of the church's moral teaching. You can't say, well, I'll take this part, but not that. It all comes together, and that's where the difficult work is. Now, as I said, the church does not presume to instruct individual Catholics which candidate to vote for, but it does propose that Catholics and all conscientious citizens take into consideration the hierarchy of morality as they exercise the responsibilities of citizenship. Here are the bishops again. Two temptations in public life can distort the church's defense of human life and dignity. The first is a moral equivalence that makes no ethical distinctions between different kinds of issues involving human life and dignity. The direct and intentional destruction of innocent human life from the moment of conception until natural death is always wrong 
and not just one issue among many. It must always be opposed. The second, remember our Lord's formula, the first, love God, the second is like it. The second, according to the bishops, is the misuse of these necessary moral distinctions as a way of dismissing or ignoring other serious threats to human life and dignity. Racism and other unjust discrimination, the use of the death penalty, resorting to unjust war, the use of torture, war crimes, the failure to respond to those who are suffering from hunger or a lack of health care, or an unjust immigration policy are all serious moral issues that challenge our consciences and require us to act. So I was, last year I was down on the border in El Paso where my nephew, after two tours in Iran, in intelligence, so he was, he was dispatched to gather intelligence in the villages and return it. Very, very dangerous work. My nephew was raised Pentecostal and wrote a note to his mother to write to his aunt, my wife, asking if I could find a medal uh, for St. Barbara and have it blessed by the Pope and send it to him. He wanted to wear it in Iraq. Did I say Iran? I meant Iraq. I meant Iraq. And uh, so, what do you know? I'm in Rome. <laughs> and I get the medal from St. Barbara and I go to, uh, I go to uh, a, a papal audience and get, the, get it blessed and send it off to Iraq, to my nephew. But after two tours in Iraq, he comes home and joins the border patrol and becomes intelligence working across the border, shh, in Mexico. Oi, hey. You, you didn't get enough in Iraq that you're now in. So we were down uh, in El Paso and we were along the border there. And of course there were elements, very, very few, militia type elements who were there taking stands. You know, they're, not, they're, they're going to be the backup and, uh, they're, and, and the Border Patrol's watching them while they're having to watch them, you know what I'm saying? But uh, there, was a, there was a sympathy generated for these, um, I don't want to say vigilantes, but they were coming awful close to that. And uh, from among what might be called conservative, religious conservatives, supporting this kind of activity. And my plea there was that a very large number of those on that border are expectant mothers, unborn children. So hold on a minute. Where's the pro-life movement uh, committed to protecting, defending that, those lives and the mothers who are in such desperate condition? My point is that we can't 
separate these things. They're fully integrated. And if that causes distress and tension within us, so be it. That's where the hard work of discernment, prayer, carefulness, and let's always err on the side of mercy. But I digress. The political divisions perpetrated by opposing parties may be incompatible with the unity within Catholicism. But so is moral equivalency. Catholics must respect the logical progression from the right to life to the other human and civil rights while doing all they can to advance both. If this challenges both political parties, I'm an independent, hallelujah, the right and the left, conservatives and progressives, and either candidates, then so be it. If neither party and neither candidate will defend and protect both human life and human dignity, then we must undertake civil disobedience. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father. And we do appreciate you coming so far to be with us these, uh, these, these last two evenings. And I want to draw back just one point that Father was, was, well, the whole thing he was talking about, back to a fundamental principle that I was talking with the sisters about last night. We had a class with the Magdala Apostolate Sisters, and I was teaching it. And I, and I and was talking about the pro-life movement, and I, and I, and I said, you know, it's, it's, it's time that we pull out signs that say God is love which is the fundamental foundation upon which everything that he is talking about is founded. Uh, God is love. God gives his life. God is pro-life. John could have written that. And we are made in his image and likeness. Well, what Father's talking about tonight is something so fundamental. It is not simply the church's teaching over the last few years, as we get caught up in the craze of the pro-life movement, it is founded upon the fundamental belief and acceptance of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of who God is, and then who you are made in His image and likeness. And everything, everything falls from that. Every discussion that we have must come back to that fundamental foundational principle. Um, so I thank you, Father, for a wonderful, uh, and, and for your witness, really, for your witness to that truth that God is love. And, and if I don't live out that life of self-giving, then I'm not living as a Christian. Um, so thank you very much, Father. We appreciate your dedication. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org 
or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.